Welcome to the new revolution in fitness and performance, the Ardella Training Podcast, forging athletic bodies around the world. Here's your host, physical therapist and strength coach, Scott Ardella. Right, guys, welcome to episode number 136. Thank you for joining me this week. I have an amazing session for you, <laughs> no question about it. This is Dr. Mike Israetel, who is joining me this week from Renaissance Periodization and Juggernaut Training. He is awesome. He is one of the most brilliant minds in the fitness industry, without question. At least that's my opinion, based on what I've read and based on what I've heard from Dr. Israetel. And uh, I'm really, really excited to share this great session with you. You're going to learn a ton, and that is a guarantee. Before I tell you more about Dr. Israetel and about the new book that they have out, let me, first of all, thank you, the listener. I wanted to be more proactive in thanking people each and every week. So this week's shout-out goes to Andrew Rothschild, Joy Young, and Jeremy Eric. Guys, thank you so much for listening every week. I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you being part of the journey. Also wanted to let you know that there still is time to register for the upcoming performance training seminar that I am doing down here in South Florida. If you'd like to read about that and learn about how this seminar can benefit you, go to ardellatraining.com forward slash seminar one, and that is seminar and the number one. You can read all about that, and I hope to see you on September the 27th down here in Coral Springs, Florida. The deadline to register for that is September the 20th. So if you're thinking about that, please don't wait to register. Go ahead and do that now. And I guarantee this is going to be an amazing experience for you to learn about movement, mobility, strength, performance, and a lot of great things that I'm going to be covering in this full one-day seminar. All right, let me tell you about this interview with Dr. Mike Israetel. Again, I think that he is one of the most brilliant minds in fitness, and uh, I think you'll discover that in this interview. You're going to learn what frustrates him the most in the fitness industry. You're going to learn about a unique concept called maximum recoverable volume, or MRV, which is very important in training to maximize performance and recovery. And you're going to learn what he hoped to do different with this new book. Again, the new book is Scientific Principles of Strength Training, in which he co-wrote or co-authored with Chad Wesley Smith and Dr. Jay Hoffman. This is an outstanding book, an outstanding ebook, I should say, and uh, you can check that out. I'll have a link for that in the show notes. This is not an affiliate link or anything like that. This is a great resource that I'm recommending. I don't get paid for this in any way. I think it's a great resource that any serious fitness enthusiast should check out to better understand the principles behind programming specific to strength training. So if you're a serious strength athlete, a coach, trainer, or simply wanting to know the science and rationale behind good programming, this is a great resource to have in your library, without a doubt. I definitely had a lot of fun during this interview, and you'll even get to hear me mispronounce the great powerlifting champion, Konstantin Konstantinovs. I really mangled his name during the interview, but uh, what can you do? Uh, definitely a really good interview session. I know you'll learn a ton from. All right, so let me tell you about Dr. Mike Israetel. Dr. Mike Israetel is a professor in exercise science. He has a PhD in sports physiology. 
He is a consultant on sports nutrition to the U.S. Olympic training site. Mike has coached numerous powerlifters, weightlifters, bodybuilders, and other individuals in the area of nutrition and exercise. He is a competitive powerlifter, bodybuilder, and Brazilian jiu-jitsu grappler himself. And he has a unique combination of being a true strength scientist as well as an athlete. And again, he's just a fascinating individual. And I know you're going to love this interview. It's uh, loaded with great content. So with that, let's jump into this week's interview with Dr. Mike Israetel. Enjoy, guys. All right, Dr. Mike Israetel is joining us this week. And this will be a great session, I guarantee that. I know you're going to learn a lot out of this week's interview. Dr. Israetel, thank you so much for being here. And we're going to jump right into things and I thought it would be interesting if you could share a little bit about your background in Russia. I know that you were born there, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that experience. Sure. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. Um, I, was in, so I was born in Moscow, Russia in 1984, and I, uh, my family moved to the United States, to Detroit, Michigan, in 1991. So I was there for seven years. And uh, I'll tell you this, here's what communist Russia was like. <laughs> One of the first things we noticed when we moved to Detroit, Michigan, was that everyone seemed so much happier than they were back home in Russia. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. So, yeah. <laughs> so and that, you think of Detroit, Michigan, you may not think of the happiest place on earth. Yeah. But uh, it's interesting uh, from that perspective. Um, you know, at the time we left, it was uh, quite a bit of political unrest and uh, there were some persecutions of various minorities, uh, one of which I belonged to. So it was uh, it was a very interesting place, uh, and, and probably not interesting in such a good way. Yeah. And of course, it had some good things going for it, but uh, largely we we ran away from Russia. We didn't just kind of you know people like you know move from Sweden to America to go to college. It's not the same thing. It was not the same thing for us. We sold every single possession we had uh, at the airport on the way out. We were uh, by the customs people actually robbed us of all of our jewelry and valuables and uh, tore up our passports and we were sent on our way. Wow. So wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> good times. Communism yeah. doesn't work very well, it turns uh, out. <laughs> so I imagine you, you probably don't go back. You know, it's very interesting that you say that because it's very likely that uh, Chad Busley Smith and I are actually going to go back. Uh, Chad is going to do a meet in Russia, and I'm going to go kind of as a translator, and I have some uh, some interactions in sports science with Shaco and some of his uh, associates. So I may actually go back for the first time ever oh, wow. uh, this coming winter. Winter winter is a fun time to visit Moscow because it's like negative a trillion, but uh, <laughs> it's it could be interesting. Yeah, I have not been yeah. back since, and for a long time, none of us really had an intention of going back. Nowadays, Russia is a little bit more of a free economy. Uh, level of corruption and persecution are not nearly the same. I, I can't say I'm, you know, uh, completely excited about going back in, in a kind of freewheeling way. You know, when you visit Denmark, you kind of step off the airport and you're like, okay, the crime rate here is basically zero. I can just go wherever I want and nothing happens. And if I get lost, people will point me in the right direction. In Russia, it doesn't quite work that way. And uh, so it's, it's kind of how you have, kind of have to think on your feet there, which is not my idea of a vacation. <laughs> right. But, right. But I think it should be okay. Yeah. Now, the reason I was asking you that is I was curious if you had the experience with kind of the, the Russian sports science approach. There. Yeah, not directly. No, so, you know, I've been a I've been a student of, of many Russian sports sciences uh, scientists in the sense that I have read a lot of their literature. Sure. And in my PhD program, I have been, uh, you know, 
heavily involved with reading Russian literature and, and discoveries of those scientists, but I didn't directly get it to, you know, I didn't go to a sports school or anything like that. I, uh, you know, and then that's uh, seven years old is when I left. Right. I don't really enroll you in sports school until a little bit later than that, usually. So, you know, I basically had gone to preschool and kindergarten, and like the sure. f- sort of first grade, and that was about it. Got so, it. Got it. Mm-hmm. All right. So before I do ask you about your your background and how you got started in strength training mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. I do want to ask you something different. And that question sure. is, what's the number one thing that frustrates you the most in the fitness industry? Oh, yeah, sure. So I have a pretty, pretty worked out answer to this. Um, anyone who follows me on Facebook can see that I'm sort of parentally frustrated. And most of that's kind of as very jokingly frustrated. I don't take this stuff too seriously. But uh, I will say this. Um, perennial, repetitive, uh, sort of uh, resurgence and initial introduction of fads really drives me insane. There are a seemingly infinite number of people that will take something new and exciting that's being marketed into absolute absurdity and continue to give these things a chance where they should really know better. And what is it? P.T. Barnum, I think, said there's a sucker born every minute. <laughs> right. Unfortunately, right. that seems to be largely correct. Yeah. Now, yeah. A lot of people simply don't fall for fads anymore. I think generally the situation is improving. I think compared to maybe 10 or 20 years from uh, ago, people don't take fads as seriously because there's been a more established idea of what really works or really doesn't. But it, it just baffles me to see that every several months, sometimes every several years, this huge fad that is in blatant contradiction to all sport and exercise science or dietary nutritional science will come up and people just run to it. And then, you know, we'll, uh, all of the uh, professionals in the fitness industry, including myself, will get all sorts of questions like, hey, you know, what do you think of this new approach? You know, I really don't think much about it at all <laughs> yeah. because yeah. it's it's so wrong. And it's just crazy to me that when people see a lot of people talking about something, they, their first reaction is to think, wow, you know, maybe this has some merit. We're really, after enough, after you've seen enough fads, your first reaction should really be, I'm very skeptical and I'm not going to waste my time with this unless it's very seriously presenting itself and looks really good. You know what I mean? Right. Like yeah. um, if, if you're walking down the street and, you know, you just found uh, $20 – you're going to, for the next couple of days, you're probably going to pay attention to little pieces of paper that could be greenish on the street much more closely, right? Because you're like, well, man, I found $20 on the street. I should really be paying attention. But after about three or four months of not finding anything in the street and you've been spending your time looking at all these little tiny pieces of paper that rustle on by, you may <laughs> think that you could be a little bit, take a little bit less seriously every single piece of paper that rustles on by. So there's a lot of people that uh, they will continue to jump from fad to fad to fad. And that's really my biggest pet peeve yeah, is like, yeah. my my God, you were a pro-carbohydrate uh, vegetarian guy in the, in the late 90s. Then you were a super olive oil avocado person in the early 2000s. Then right. you went all into this, you know, uh, organic farm-raised vegan, uh, you know, what is that, uh, free-range thing in the, in the, in the late 2000s thousands or paleo or whatever. And now you're, you now you're super IIFYM in 2015. I mean, just like just a religious zealot. And it's like, my God, people really, really, <laughs> you 
really think the next fad will be it. Uh, you figure some people would learn better, but I guess there's new people entering into the fitness industry all the time, and some of them are young, and maybe they just don't know any better. But but the, the thing that really gets to me is people who are not young and should know better, but they're always looking for that one magic solution. Yeah. That drives me nuts, yeah. <laughs> as you can probably tell. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I mean, I'm in agreement. I mean, that definitely is something that really frustrates me as well. Um, I, the thing is, is that it, it really always comes down to fundamentals. Like if we're being really honest here, like nothing really changes in fitness and nutrition. It's always been about eating, you know, good, nutritious, whole foods, doing, uh, good, strong, fundamentally good exercises. And you know, these, these fads and programs, and I don't know if you want to call out anything specific, but I mean, the, the bottom line is it's about just fundamental, simple things. It's sure. not about all this this new flash in the pan stuff, and I th- sure. I think that's kind of what you're saying. It, it, I am very much saying, and, I, and another consideration to take is the expectation of the speed of results. Uh, yes. A person who has been around long enough understands that results do occur, but they occur slowly, steadily, and with plenty of hard work and attention to detail. Uh, you know, the way, one of the ways fads work is number one, they violate some of the basics, which people, you know, which are catchy, right? right. Eat donuts and lose weight. Oh, wow. You know, I'm gonna look, I gotta look this up. <laughs> they, and another one in which they violate it is they, they seem to make things much easier and faster than they otherwise would have been, you know, like, Oh, you know, 10 day transformation detoxes and cleanse me you know, Hollywood is obsessed with detoxes and cleanses. And, you know, you lose 15 pounds in seven days. Well, you know, yeah, I can go to the sauna and lose 15 pounds in an hour if you want. But, uh, you know, what does that actually mean? So a lot of these fads, you know, so basically it comes down to, you know, if it looks too good to be true, it might be true, but it's very unlikely. Right. So if you right. just approach things, you know, people, people have called that approach jaded. I think jaded is just another way of saying experienced <laughs> in <laughs> right, that regard. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we could certainly talk a lot about this subject. As a matter of fact, I think we could probably make a show uh, discussing sure. fads and, and, and gimmicks and things like that in the industry. Yeah. Um, but I, I did want to ask you about your journey in strength training and, and muscle building. And so you really have a rare combination of being a, a true strength scientist and an athlete yourself. So I was wondering if you could maybe share your, your journey and story. Sure. Well, so I was actually designed in the Soviet Union as a human weapon. <laughs> Nice. And, you know, when I ran away, they just lost my PIN number. They could no longer control me. And here I am in the United States. You know? Nice. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Nobody's going to take that seriously. It's pretty right. sweet. Uh, so basically, you know, as a, uh, as, a, as a kid, I played soccer and all the other particular Eastern European sports, mostly soccer. <laughs> and, and then when I got into high school, uh, by total accident, because a friend of mine was going to wrestling practice i joined him on kind of the first day of wrestling and i began wrestling and so i wrestled all through high school and i started to train with weights to get stronger for wrestling and so that i could look better because i didn't particularly like the way i looked so uh after a while i I realized that uh i actually liked lifting considerably more than i liked wrestling unfortunately the uh, wrestling program from which i came the coaching was uh 
terrible. I'll just say that. And they, they kind of really made you hate the sport. <laughs> right. So uh, it was one of those coaching situations where you were nothing, you were pathetic. And unless you were a state champion, you should just really hate yourself. You know, it's that like really negative kind of motivation, uh, much more punishment than reward oriented, which just usually makes people want to quit, including sure. myself. So, yeah. uh, so I finished wrestling in high school. I was, I wrestled for four years and then in college, I got really seriously involved in lifting. And I looked up some uh, federation records at the time and I could break some of these federation records in the bench press. So I competed and broke a world record in the APA, which at the time was, I think I benched 370 at 181. And I was like 19 years old. And then I just kept lifting. And I started a, a powerlifting club at the Univers uh, University of Michigan, where I was an undergrad. And then I just kept lifting, getting bigger and stronger. And I started reading bodybuilding magazines. Right. So uh, just for, for some reason, the sport really appealed to me. I, I liked that attention to eating. I liked the ability to, to get leaner and, and, and more muscular kind of at, at a whim, whatever you wanted. And uh, it, when I was pursuing master's at Appalachian State and then into my PhD program at ATSU, I started to really, really kind of fall in love with bodybuilding. And I have done uh, two shows so far just recently. So I was always of the opinion that uh, it, in, in my journey in bodybuilding, I was going to be big as soon as I stepped on stage. I didn't want to step on stage being small and kind of work my way up. I was just going to kind of work out in the trenches. And then when I was actually jacked, I was going to step on stage, which by no means is, is what I recommend for everyone. I think if you, you can compete at any size you like, and that's just totally fine. So so I actually stepped on stage for the first time, I think, uh, two years ago, um, and I weighed 234 pounds at 5'6 on stage for the first time. Wow. wow. So, yeah, and that was in terrible, <laughs> terrible conditioning. But, I mean, I was lean. I just wasn't bodybuilder lean. Right. Uh, and then since then, I've improved on that, and I'm looking forward to competing again in the fall in this coming spring and really bringing out my conditioning. But bodybuilding has been a huge passion. And as, as, to kind of close out the story about my journey in sport, uh, I, I did so much cardio for my first bodybuilding show, and it all you know, incline walking and stuff like that. That I swore, I swore to God, I would never incline walk again <laughs> because <laughs> right. it's just unbelievably boring and terrible, and all the bad things in this world. I'm pretty sure are related to incline walking somehow. So. Um, I was kind of itching to get back into, I had a couple of friends that were involved in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I was on my way to central Missouri for the first time to accept a professor position there as my first job out of PhD. And one of, uh, who is now one of my colleagues at Renaissance Periodization, Dr. Jen Case, she was a world-class competitor in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and she was uh, going to be one of my former, uh, my uh, colleague professors at uh, University of Central Missouri. So she was already there and I met her during the interview and she was a, you know, a total, uh, a total stud in jiu-jitsu. And, uh, you know, I messaged her and I was like, hey, you know, I'm going to be coming to work in two weeks. Uh, I want to do jiu-jitsu and I'm not joking. Uh, will you take me with you to do jiu-jitsu? And she's like, yeah, sure. And of course, as usual, she thought that I wasn't going to show up because, you know, a lot of people say they want to do all kinds of things. And they never show up. Right. <laughs> so sure enough, I texted her like the day before we were supposed to go. And I was like, hey, still ready to go to jiu-jitsu? She was like, oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, cool. So then I started nice. doing jiu-jitsu and that was about two years ago. Okay. I never stopped. And so jujitsu fundamentally is a form of cardio for me. So that's where I get my cardio for bodybuilding. And it's holy crap. Is it a calorically expensive form of cardio? I mean, a thousand calories a workout, no problem. Because you use your whole body and you're literally 
struggling to survive. (laughs) So the calories are awesome. And I got me back in touch with my wrestling roots. And I absolutely have fallen in love with the sport. And eventually when I stop bodybuilding, I'm going to keep doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I'm I'm positive I'm never going to stop doing that my entire life. If I don't – so sometimes I'll go on vacation or take intentional training breaks from jiu-jitsu that last about a week. At the end of that week, I have dreams about rolling and I wake up like, and I'm like, oh my God, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I have to go roll. <laughs> yeah, so it's a really big part of my life. And it, wow. uh, wow. it's so, so now I'm a, I'm a bodybuilder and a grappler and I compete and it's really fun and it's, it's really great. Got it. Now, what about powerlifting? Do you compete in uh, powerlifting as well? Yeah. So I used to compete in powerlifting, right? So during that time, so I did some ben- uh, bench press competition and then I competed in powerlifting all through undergrad. So so a big part of my undergrad was me competing in powerlifting. And this was back in the day. I was a raw lifter and I was drug free and uh, nobody else was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was like in the heyday of the WPO, if you remember, and right. super multiply lifting. And I would lift and kind of these backwater federations or as a raw lifter and equipped meets and everyone thought it was funny how deep I squatted. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, my friends and I who were also students at the University of Michigan or fellow powerlifters on our team, we'd go to these meets and uh, compete. It was really awesome. But by the time that raw lifting was really reborn in about 2009, I was already on my way to being a bodybuilder. And, uh, you know, multi-sport training is difficult to pull off if you have two sports like jiu-jitsu yeah. and bodybuilding but adding powerlifting to that mix just wouldn't really make much sense because it would it would just significantly degrade my performance in the other two sports right trying to Got peak it. for three sports is almost impossible so i'm i'm pretty much done powerlifting but uh you know i have a, a super super passionate about strength training and strength gains and i train a bunch of powerlifters and I used to train a bunch more. I used to be a powerlifting coach for a very long time. So I'm very much passionate about the sport. I'm a huge fan of the sport and a, a previous competitor. And I, and I absolutely love what's happened to the sport in every instance since I quit. Yeah, right, <laughs> uh, right. Basically, you know, since the raw revolution began in 2008, 2009, yeah. um, I think it's been super, super awesome. Uh, I think I respect people who lift in equipment, but I, I'm, I think that raw is really where it's at. And I'm so happy that the sport is growing so fast yeah. as it is. Awesome. You know, I want to go back to what you said when you started training with weights. So I'm just curious, what did you start, uh, doing like what exercises did you do when you first started like were, were you squatting were you deadlifting were no. you benching what were you doing? no way <laughs> you know i did uh i benched uh i benched i benched i benched i curled okay <laughs> so really you could say i had all my bases covered right um right. and i benched you know i think i think i benched every day and um during this is hilarious during parent teacher conferences okay my gym teacher told my mom that I'm very, uh, you know, hardworking and I'm one of the only people in class that always trains, but I shouldn't be training every single day, (laughs) the same (laughs) muscle groups. (laughs) So she told me that and I was like, oh crap. (laughs) So he never told me that, but he told my mom when she came to parent teacher conferences. So, uh, I, I started training bench only every other day. And of course that helped a lot. And my my bench got a lot stronger and I kept curling, you know, this is terrible technique all around. And, um, my science teacher, actually pulled me aside once and he was like, you don't train your legs. And I was like, no, he's like, that's really stupid. Let's go train <laughs> legs. So he took me into the gym's weight room where I had been numerous times and um, took me to the squat rack and taught me how to squat deep. And I remember my first workout ever, I did 185 
for uh, uh, several sets of six reps. Okay. And I weighed about 165 pounds at the time. And that was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> right. And then I remember uh, my parents sent my sister and I to go get some more pumpkin pie on Thursday yeah. to the store that was open through, throughout the holidays. I remember I had a really, really hard time getting off of the porch, which was only half a foot high off the ground. Absolutely. I was like, oh, oh my God, I couldn't yeah. barely move my legs. It was complete total soreness. And I oh, like man. basically fell off the porch. <laughs> so that was my first introduction to leg training. And I was hooked. I mean, yeah. you know, while this was a real... You know, teenagers tend to be really into the manliness thing, right. and that was about as manly as it got. You know, you, you don't you feel like a you don't feel like a warrior when you bench, but when you squat, you feel like you survived something. Yeah. So I never stopped squatting after that. It's really interesting because you know I started squatting when I started training. Like that was literally one of the first things I I started doing, and I've I've always loved squatting. But you know, most people don't, and I wonder I wonder if today. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that's shifting where more people are understanding the value and importance of squatting and programming and that is uh, becoming part of a program right off the off the bat? You know what I mean? I think it, de- I think it depends. Yeah, absolutely. I think it depends on where you come from. Yeah. There's like two sides or multiple sides, but two of them of how you approach lifting is some people approach lifting from they start to read articles online and they start to look at other strength coaches and strength people and they emulate them. And of course all the best people squat, right? So they'll go in there and they'll do something like starting strength, you know, where they squat, bench, deadlift, and they do all the compound basics right off the bat. The other entry into lifting is from purely kind of egotistical, usually appearance related, right. is when you're in a relative environment of relative ignorance, you're training with a lot of other high school students or college students, and you just bench and curl and maybe do some shoulder work or something. And no, those people squat because they don't really care how big their legs are. You know, you, you do not really attract the opposite sex much by having big legs, but there is something to be said for having big arms and a big chest and Right. And abs, you know, so everyone trains their abs. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so oh, if you come at it from a from a sport perspective and you know other athletes, yeah, you squat. And everyone knows the importance of squat. You know, even those people who um, do chest and shoulders and biceps all the time, they know squatting is important. They just don't care. You know, they, they that's not one of their priorities. But they know they're being the wusses for not squatting. That's for sure. You can always guilt trip those people. <laughs> right, right. So, Mike, I want to ask you uh, definitely about the, the new book, Scientific Principles of Strength Training. Before I ask you about that, I, I'm just curious if you could share maybe what you're doing right now in your training. So uh, you mentioned that you were uh, training for a bodybuilding competition. So are you in, are you in prep- preparation mode right now? Or? Oh, you know, not even remotely. The, the, so okay. the, well, I, I guess it depends on how you phrase that. Technically speaking, you're always in a preparation mode right. because the entire career is spent setting up, you know, as much – performance enhancement as possible. So I'm definitely in a, so, so what I just, uh, I'm finishing this week is a four week, uh, active rest phase basically okay. where I train relatively heavy, but with a really low volume and, uh, such low volume that my body is very much recovering from the months and months and months of pounding training that had occurred before this. And I'm gearing up, I'm maintaining my body weight. I currently weigh 245 pounds or so. And I'm currently maintaining my my weight because I'm not trying to uh, gain any muscle or lose any fat. That would be impossible with such low volumes or really bad idea. So what I'm doing right now is essentially giving my body a chance to uh, rest and a chance to heal up and a chance to conserve its strength and its muscle size. And then next week I begin 
uh, a, a sort of a 10-week a, a phase of fat loss. And then what I'm going to do, and that's going to be more jiu-jitsu training for more cardio, right. much higher volume of strength, uh, of uh, resistance training. And, and I train six times a week. I do uh, – so I do chest and uh, shoulders and biceps on one day, legs on another day, back, shoulders and biceps on a third day, and then I repeat that later in the week. So uh, that's going to be what I'll be doing. And I'm going to be cutting for 10 weeks and losing fat. Once I've lost some fat, that's going to potentiate some muscle growth. So I'm going to go through probably five weeks of uh, muscle gain. Then I'm going to take another short, uh, not break, but a lower volume training period. And then I'm going to do probably a three or four month real serious cutting phase into my next show. So basically I'll be done massing right around the holidays. And then right after the holidays, I start cutting for the show. Got it. Got it. Now, let me go back to the, the active rest phase that you're doing right now. And I'm just curious, is there more variety in this training block or is it more structured like, like any other time? Um, I basically use because I don't have, because I only have to stimulate, um, enough to retain my gains. Yes. And I don't have to stimulate enough to overload to accrue new ones. I usually use uh, variants of training uh, modalities, exercises that are not overloading or not as overloading. So I'll use do more cable work. I'll do more like machine work. Uh, so stuff that is just good enough to keep my muscle on me. <laughs> right. Right. And right. I still do the, bar the barbell basics, but not with as high volumes. I mean, not as much as I could. So uh, you know, I still squat. Uh, I still pull, uh, I still uh, bench, but you know some of the extra volume that I'll add will be more machine stuff, and it's still high force, right. but just not very disruptive. You know, I'm almost not. I I don't even remember the last time I got sore. My hamstrings got sore from Good Mornings, but they always do. Um, and, and you know, I haven't been sore for basically a month, which is great because now I'm really ready to uh, adapt to training. My adaptive proclivity is very high. I'm very sensitive to training. So now, if I just do a regular three sets of ten, I'm gonna blow up and I'll be super sore. I'll grow a bunch of muscle, burn a bunch of fat, and that's exactly what I want out of this. The, one of the interesting implications of scientific training in general and, and variation in particular is that even the basic functions of growth are something that lose steam if you do them all the time. So yes, you absolutely grow more muscle and get stronger if you every now and again rotate the exercises, right? Because that presents right. a novel angle, novel stimulus. Sure. But not only this, but every now and again, you have to rotate out the very act of trying to improve, right? Because anytime you, you try to improve muscle and strength, you're going to stimulate some of the very same systems. And these systems, they experience basically an adaptation that precludes them from expanding much more. And every now and again, you kind of need to let them rest, not stimulate them too much. They lose that memory of those past training stimuli, and now they're ready to expand your abilities one more time. So how often would you say for you that this type of training uh, is required to do an active rest? One, yeah, totally. Yeah. One to two times a year. Okay. Got it. Got it. Yep. 
Right. And this is very ubiquitous, by the way, in the athletic world and very ubiquitous in the bodybuilding world. Uh, you know, somebody like uh, people keep bringing up the example of John Meadows, who after his last big show of a season will train for a little bit and then he'll take two or three weeks pretty much off of training and then slowly build back up. And this is the kind of stuff that heals injuries and uh, psychologically will reinvigorate your training and will also prepare you physiologically for new gains. You know, the thing is that it, being hardcore is all good and well, and you should yeah. be when the time is right. But if you're hardcore all the time and you just burn it up all the time, eventually your body becomes resistant to gains. And if you're not training for gains and you're just training because you need to train hard to be psychologically well, well, that's, that's a personal issue you have to resolve. So a really good athlete, uh, a good athlete trains hard all the time. A great athlete understands that sometimes easy training is a part of the larger plan to get the best that he can be. Yeah. And we'll definitely talk about that here for sure cool. as, as we talk about uh, your book. So the new book, uh, Scientific Principles of Strength Training, uh, I'm one of the guys that, that bought it right when it came out. And I actually uh, printed off this thing. I have it bound in, in two separate uh, binders here. And okay, in full cool. disclosure, I have not read the full thing yet. I'm, I'm taking my time to really read this and, and understand it. And it's, uh, it's fantastic. But tell people about this book and what you hope to, to do differently by putting this book out. Yeah, sure. So... The book is really something that came about based on a lot of questions that I was getting uh, about powerlifting training. So I began to write articles for Juggernaut Training Systems about powerlifting training. The kind of questions I would get is, you know, uh, what do you think of the cube method? What do you think of West Side? What do you think of Juggernaut? What do you think of five through one? What do you think of all these training methods? And the the real answer was that all of them had some very good things going for them and all of them had some very bad things going for them. And I, I uh, eventually, you have to kind of say what are the good things and what are the bad things. And it turns out that how good a program is or how bad it is can be quantified. There are distinct principles that govern program design. So for example, if we had a, a, a race of uh, a car race between a really giant non-aerodynamic car but had a really, really big engine in it and a really small car that was super aerodynamic but had a really small engine and then another car that was super aerodynamic and had a big engine and a bunch of other different car designs, you know, we could say, well, oh, you know, hey, what kind of car are you into? And you could say, well, I'm into the smaller cars. But then the next question is, well, why, right? And it turns out there are distinct principles that govern vehicle engineering and air, aerodynamics is one of them you know engine output to weight ratio is one of them and you can't ignore these things there no program ever can ignore these things right so if you want to build the fastest possible car given certain conditions limitations you had better know the underlying principles it's not good enough just to experiment with the big car that weighs a lot and go well the engine was powerful but it didn't go as fast as i wanted to because it's really heavy right there power to weight ratio is this fundamental principle of car design right so if you want to build a really good car that's why you go to engineering school to learn all these things and then you can spend way less time than otherwise making uh, making a car that's just going to be way better or if you're buying a car you can know which cars are probably not a good idea to buy and others which are a very good idea to buy because they are conformed to the underlying principles so the right. same thing applies right. with powerlifting program design 
are principles on which good powerlifting programs are based. And if you violate those principles, your program is going to suffer to some extent. So when you look at purchasing a program or at taking a program off the internet and, and using it or even writing your own program, you if you understand these basic principles, you can be an intelligent buyer, an intelligent program designer. If you don't understand them, man, you're taking a shot in the dark. And what I saw online was a lot of people were taking shots in the dark and they would just, they would compare programs as if they were fans of sports teams, right? Well, I think the Jets are better. Well, no, you know, you know, this other football team is better. Well, why, right? And the fans can never say why because they are arbitrarily linked to a city that they live in, right? right. <laughs> it's not like some football programs are functionally better, morally better somehow. But with powerlifting programs, Programs. Yeah, you know, some programs may actually be better than others, specifically better for some individuals at some time in their careers. So I, we wrote this book, uh, myself, uh, Dr. Hoffman and, and Chad, because we were so, I don't want to say fed up, yeah. but we so saw a need to communicate these basic principles to people. And, and you know, if you are ignorant and uh, you do not like to think about training, you just say, you know what? bro, we're just going to smash weights and get stronger. Fine. Book's not for you. That's okay. <laughs> right, right. right. But for yeah. what we really didn't like to see was thinking lifters yes. going yes. program to program to program and having no idea what was going on. Yes. This book is for you. That's why we wrote it. <laughs> yeah. So, so I love that because I'm a big, uh, you know, advocate for understanding why you're doing what you're doing. You know I mean? Every program works. I mean, you can sure. you know, follow any program, but you know, do you know why you're doing this program? Does it make sense? Do you understand the rationale behind it? So I love this idea of going really deep like you did in this book uh, with these, these big principles. I'm curious, what were the, the guiding resources to get this book done? Because, and I actually want to ask you about the book writing process because this is mm -hmm. a, a pretty amazing resource. But what were the, the guiding resources that, that allowed you to really put this information together? I wrote the entire book with no resources whatsoever. Really? Yeah, it's written entirely from memory. Yep. And what we did later was uh, we, uh, of course, I learned that stuff somewhere. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so we went back after the book was written and sourced it uh, because we want to point people into the right direction to get uh, an understanding of more specific uh, things that we said. That's and, right. of course, to back up some more controversial claims that aren't kind of you know evident from those basic sources. So when I sat down and wrote the book, I didn't have any books in front of me or anything. I wrote it mostly – on an iPad on the way to and from jujitsu. Yeah. Um, some, <laughs> one of my friends would drive my car and I would just type away in the iPad. So, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of sweatiness involved and a lot yeah. of really disgusting post jujitsu funk. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully it didn't transmit digitally into the book, but, uh, you know, so I wrote the whole book, uh, right there and then, uh, but, uh, the resources were, you know, I, I have a PhD in sport physiology, Right. So right, it's, right. it's not like I was just like reading stuff online and then decided to write a book. Right. Um, right. I had been formally, formally educated in this stuff. So I went back to a lot of the books we used in my, um, in my education. So periodization for sport by, uh, uh, Bompa and Hoff, uh, Dr. Stone's book, uh, the, you know, principles of resistance training book and, uh, uh, of a right peaking and tapering by Inigo Mujica and, and a lot of other books uh, were kind of the core foundation. So we very much because this this book that we wrote, uh, Scientific Principles, is really a so sort of translational work, right? It doesn't. It has a couple of new ideas in it, but nothing too revolutionary. Maximum recoverable volume is one of those kind of new ideas, but uh, you know the book isn't. 
a kind of a it's not a, a research paper it's not an experiment it's based on some very well established general ideas sure sure so when people say oh you know what what are your references what are your sources well our references are books and they say well but these aren't like pubmed studies well the books reference pubmed studies so you could say our book is a tertiary level of knowledge right primary sources are studies themselves Secondary sources are literature reviews and textbooks. Ours is a tertiary source of knowledge. It takes the general concepts and principles explained in textbooks and puts them to good use. So those are the main sources we use. And of course, every now and again, we use a literature review. And some particular claims in the book required citation of individual studies. But we really try not to do that because if you want to source an entire book on individual studies, either you're going to have 10,000 references that's going to be completely pointless um, or you're going to just be (laughs) cherry-picking. Which things you reference and which you don't. Yeah, got it. Well, that's great. Um, I mean, it's awesome that you really just put this thing down on paper from all of your experiences and knowledge, obviously, and and boil it down to to its current format. And I think it's again just based on what I've read. It's just a, a very valuable book for the intelligent lifter. So well, thank you very much. I, that's exactly who I wrote it for. You know, I, every single the books, it's a bit wordy, uh, and, and it's not just. I don't think it's wordy. I don't, I'm not sure. I hope I don't write for wordy for wordiness' sake. Because I'm not trying to do that. Yeah. But it's it's got you know you've noticed that it's got like a bunch of little contingencies everywhere. It's like you know here's a list of reasons you should do this, and it's A through F, and you know they have sub reasons. Uh, the reason I wrote it in such detail is because I am trying to write it for the smartest lifter that I can imagine. Right. I want the most intelligent, knowledgeable lifter to still read the book and go, you know what? This is a lot of really good stuff in it. Yes. As opposed to reading it and be like, oh, it's either really too basic or, man, he gets a lot of stuff wrong or he just <laughs> right. doesn't doesn't think into the yeah. particularities and the intricacies of this kind of stuff. So I wrote it to be meaty uh, and, and hope, because if I read a book, that's how I want it to be. It basically comes down to that. You know, I, I'm that nerd that reads books and go, hmm, but what if this other thing? And then a lot of people, it's funny, that have been messaging me as they're reading the book. And they, they're like, well, so I read your overload chapter. What if this other thing? And I go, ah, 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 get to the SRA <laughs> chapter. And they get to it. They're like, ah, nice, you got me. Nice. There's 15 pages on that. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Now, here's a question I did want to ask you. So obviously this book is written for the power lifter but I think the principles can be applied for any strength athlete. Do you agree with that? Totally. That's okay. why we actually retitled the book later, late in its development. It was originally supposed to be called Understanding Raw Powerlifting Training. Right. Then it was because equipment equip training is fundamentally kind of just dying out. So we we're going to call it just just uh, Understanding Powerlifting Training because there's right. no really sense to say raw anymore. But um, – uh, you know, what, the, the idea really came from uh, James Hoffman, who uh, did the most detailed editing of the book. That was one of his primary roles in the writing. Was he he just ripped it to shreds for me, right? And of course, it came out better after I made all the corrections. And after he edited it and he did all the source citation, he said, "Mike, you know what? This really is not just a powerlifting book. Right? Uh, you should you're gonna sell plenty of copies and get a lot of good stuff out there to powerlifters. But I think a lot of people could read this that are just a general." 
anywhere in the strength world and get a huge benefit out of it. So I think you should retitle it. And uh, Chad uh, Wesley Smith said the same thing uh, when he got a full look at the book and added in his own particular parts. He's like, yeah, you know, I think it's actually just better to retitle it, you know, strength training as opposed to powerlifting. And of course, it's subtitled, you know, with applications to powerlifting training. But yes, I absolutely think that uh, somebody who's involved in general strength training or any of the strength sports get a ton out of it. As a matter of fact, um, one of my friends is going to be writing an article. He is, uh, uh, he got an engineering degree at MIT, right? So he's not very intelligent, <laughs> but, uh, his Mike yeah. Nakul, I believe is the way you pronounce his name. And, um, he is a, a very high level Olympic weightlifter and he just read the book and he said he loved it. And he's going to write an article kind of translating the book for weightlifters and say, how could they could get the most out of it? Because they can get a lot out of the book and so can yeah. every other strength trainer, um, I think. Absolutely. Would you, is there a most important chapter in the book? I mean, is there is there a critical chapter that people really have to understand to get the most oh. out of it? <laughs> you know, maybe the maybe the intro. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, it, it kind of depends on what you're looking for and how, how much you know already. If you know a lot of stuff already, um, then the SRA chapter, stimulus recovery adaptation, uh, particularly the discussion on optimal training frequencies, I think it's going to be really insightful for lifters that have been lifting a while and really deeply thinking about lifting a while. That has a lot of original ideas in it. It has a lot of not so much original. I'm not really known for original ideas. I'm known for taking existing ideas and cobbling them together in original ways. <laughs> so it's it, that's a as a chapter I'm very personally proud of. After I wrote that, I was like, holy crap, did I, I really put that down on paper? That's amazing. And there's some super in-depth discussions in that chapter. But is it the most important? No, because we have a priority ranking for the principles and how important they are. And SRA is not even close yeah. <laughs> to the top, right? It's not even the most important. If you're completely unaware of training frequency or, or any of that in program design, you can still build really, really good programs, it turns out. So I think, that, you know, by definition, the, the most important chapter is probably specificity because yeah. that's the most important training well, principle. Yeah. So that would have been my guess as to your response to that question. Mm -hmm. That's kind of why I was asking that. Mm -hmm. Is that the most important thing? Because everything... That's a starting point, and everything is really built around that. You bet. So, okay. How long did it take you to, to actually write this? I'm curious. Man, you know, I'm not sure how many total hours it took me, but it took me like probably about half a year uh, because I only wrote it when I had free time. And I'm a full-time college professor, so I don't you know, exactly have a ton of free time. But what I would do is – so the most common way I would write the book – is when I was living in Kansas City and I just moved, I started a new position at Temple University in Philadelphia. Um, so I was training in Kansas City at Kansas City Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is a phenomenal club. And we uh, would carpool, uh, my friends and I would carpool from Warrensburg, Missouri to Kansas City Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is an hour and 10 minutes. Okay, We went four to five times a week, okay. usually. And it's an hour and 10 minutes one way and an hour and 10 minutes back. So oh, wow. that's a one heck of a drive. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So I had an iPad <laughs> and I would let one of my friends drive my car and uh, I would sit in the back and arrange pillows in such a way as they would support my elbows <laughs> so I could yeah. type. And I would uh, crank out, uh, you know, some text here, some text there. And what that really allowed me to do was two things. One, it allowed me to get a ton of work done because it was like, you know, 10 hours a week that I would essentially would have spent doing nothing. Yeah. And also it allowed me to come back fresh very often to text that I had written. Mm 
you know, sometimes you write, 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 and things get really stale. You don't even know what you're writing about anymore. But when you come back to it fresh after a couple of hours or a couple of days, you're like, ah, you know, I can add a couple things to this. Or, ooh, I'm going to rephrase that. Or, oh, that was a really good way of saying it. I'm going to make sure to close out this section so I don't say anything else. (laughs) You know, sometimes there's that temptation to keep writing when you've already made all your points and you're like, ah, I could just delete this last paragraph. (laughs) So it turned out to be really good. You know, in an ideal setting, I'd probably like to sit down for longer, two to four hours at a time. But, uh, you know, hey, you know, it worked. It worked. And eventually I got the book done. That's awesome. Now, looking back, so the book is out now. It's been out a couple of months, I think. So is there anything that that should have been included? Anything that's potentially missing? Or did, did you really say everything that needed to be said in this book? Well, you know, I'm, I'm the world's authority on it. So of course I said everything. Said. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? I'll tell you this with the Renaissance diet book, which was my first book right. and, uh, it was, a, it was very still selling incredibly well. Um, there is definitely going to be in the future, a second edition, which is much more expansive and covers distinct things that we did not address. Some of them we did not address because there was an insufficient research base, which is now starting to grow. Others we didn't address because we didn't want to overcomplicate the book. Right. Right. Um, The principles of powerlifting training, I haven't had enough time and enough feedback from readers yet to know what the big missing pieces are. There definitely are missing pieces. There definitely are things I could continue to write about. But with the diet book, we're now getting a really good feel of other stuff we can put in to make a second edition. With the powerlifting book, uh, or I'm sorry, the strength training book, not quite there yet. Of course there are missing pieces. I just don't know them yet. Right, right. All right. Well, we'll look forward to that. Cool. Where would you put this book? uh, If you look at a book like Super Training and the Science and Practice of Strength Training, where would you put this book? I mean, is it in in that type of category of books? I think it is. Well, thank you very much. You know, multiple other people have told me that they think it belongs in that kind of – Yes. um, uh, Sort of belong in that kind of realm. Yeah, it's very flattering and uh, I'm not – I think in a uh, position to say, but I will say that I sure point. hope so. Yes. And um, it was definitely, it was never my intent to make this book a classic or something like that. Cause you know, who knows, maybe it, it, it stinks, but um, I was certainly trying to be comprehensive. I want, I would love for a lot of lifters to read the book. Yes. Um, I think the, if you're trying to get stronger and if you are doing powerlifting, you have a bunch of questions about how training works. I think if you read the book, you're going to have a lot fewer questions or maybe a lot more, but you'll at least know a whole lot of stuff. Right. So Hopefully it's that good. I will say something uh, that is a bit cocky, I guess, um, <laughs> but I think I can support it. Right. I think I'm pretty good at translating really complicated technical science stuff into real-world examples and, and real-world language. Um, yeah. I, you know, Some people have made criticisms of other books in, in that have been compared to mine – that they're super technical and nobody's any idea what the heck they're talking about. Uh, you know, I've read Super Training, um, a PhD in sports science, so Super Training made perfect sense to me. Yeah. But a lot of other people, it, I can absolutely see why, have said like, "What the heck is this? Is he talking about?" You know, some some of the stuff I have to reread and go, "Oh, he's using this term to mean that." Right. But the only reason I know this term is because it's been beaten in my head for three years by Doctor Stone. <laughs> so uh, you know, some some of the books in this area, especially some of them that have been translated from Russian. Um, uh, you know, boy, are they over technical and, and, and some of them maybe aren't as clear as they could be. I don't know if my book suffers from that. I sure hope it doesn't as much. 
let me ask you about uh, one specific thing here. So you did men- mention MRV, maximum mm-hmm. recoverable volume. I w- wonder if you can explain what that is and how people can assess that. Sure. So MRV is in a, in a very general definition. This is a concept that I have personally coined. Uh, I can't believe it hasn't been coined already. Is <laughs> um, one of those things that I was looking for a term to, to define exactly what I meant, and the term didn't exist. So maximum recoverable volume is the uh, most training you can do and still benefit from. It's the most training you can do as far as quantity of training and still recover and adapt to. Right? So if you do any less training than your maximum recoverable volume in a particular scenario, you're just leaving gas in the tank. Right? You could be better. Uh, you know, that's that old adage, like, uh, in wrestling, they kept telling us, like, you know, whenever you're resting, the state champ is training. You know what I mean? Like, right. well, he's going right. to get, hopefully that's the case so he can overtrain and die and then I'll just win by default. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they certainly have a point, like, you know, if you rest too much, you could have been doing more. So that's, sure. if you train under your maximum recoverable volume, if you train over your maximum recoverable volume, you're doing worse than spinning your wheels. You're actually actively making your body weaker and potentially more prone to injury because you are not adequately recovering. It's so much training volume that your recovery and adaptation systems simply can't keep up. So the maximum recovery volume concept I think is really great because it answers the age-old question, how much should I train? Right. Well, to your MRV or your closest approximation. How do you approximate it? You begin doing a certain level of volume that you know you can for sure recover from. And incrementally, over every week, usually, you increase the volume. When your performance starts to sputter and your fatigue starts to get out of control, you know you're in that general area of your maximum recoverable volume. And that's by no means not the same for the for different individuals. Let me give you an example. And I'm sure you've run into multiple individuals in your coaching career that you could think of. Some people – Two to three sets of an exercise, they're sore for days. They're beat <laughs> right. up. If you do any more, yeah. they break into pieces. Other people can crank it and crank it and crank it. And you're like, how do you feel? They're like, I feel great. You're like, I can't believe you're not dead. Yeah. <laughs> but here's another set of squats. So uh, it, it's not the same number for different people. And the, the cool thing with MRV is when you find for your particular sport and intensity range and, and nutritional input, right? Because if you're if you're cutting, your MRV is going to be lower because you can't recover as well when you're low calorie. Right. But if for your particular situation, you find kind of the and Dr. James Hoffman always reminds me, MRV is a, a band. It's a range where you can't get an exact value. That would be pretty much impossible because there's some variation. But if you find your MRV range, that's a brilliant, beautiful tool you can use because now you know how much to train approximately how much training you need to maximally uh, get the best benefit and recover and adapt and continue to train as opposed to doing one of two things. You know, somebody says, hey, do three by five, right? Are you familiar with like the five by five program? Sure. It's a, it's a good program, but you know, how ostentatious to assume that everyone is going to be doing five by five and get the right stimulus. I know people that if they try to do five by five and exercise, they're going to be burnt out in two weeks. I know other people right, that wouldn't even right. feel it. So the MRV gives you the ability when you determine it and the way you determine it is keeping track of your fatigue state and your performance, seeing when your performance dips, noting that volume, trying it again weeks later. If it's similar volume, well, now you're onto something. Right, and you can use more advanced sports science tools, resting heart rate, a bunch of other things. But generally speaking, you want you want to find that max recoverable volume, and when you find it, that's where you're going to flirt around, right? That's where yeah. you're going to hang out for most of your training. Occasionally, you'll train a little less to recover. 
occasionally, you'll intentionally exceed your uh, MRV for very short periods for what's called functional overreaching, intentionally beating up your body so bad that when you back off a lot later, it super compensates and gets even better for you. But on average, it's all going to be built around that MRV max or carbon volume value, and that's very different for different people. Now, would the RPE be uh, associated with the MRV? MRV as you a way bet. to RPE okay. is one is one of many very good tools to okay. know when it is you are approaching your MRV, right? So if you're if your RPE at a given, let's say you're raising your volume, right, and uh, if your training volume is very low, you're going to be able to express your strength very well. Right. So the weights that you typically lift that you're, you know, let's say you can typically squat 475 for five all around there. And if you are very low volumes of training that you can really recover from, you squat 475 for five, it'll be an RPE of like seven, you know, like whatever. It was fine. Tough, but (laughs) fine. If you consistently raise your training volume and you haven't come close to your MRV yet, that RPE value is still going to be really low. Now, if you're starting to come up to your max recoverable volume, you're going to accumulate quite a bit of fatigue. You're going to be really pushing it. And then it's 475 for five is going to start to be an RP9 or RP8, then RP9, then 9.5, right? right. right? And so if you keep track, RPE is uh, basically another uh, way of saying how heavy does the bar feel and how successful are you at lifting weights, right? If you're very successful at lifting weights all the time, you're just training enough to show off and you're not going to get much better. And if they're all easy weights, you're by definition violating overload, right? If everything is an RPE 6, there is no overload. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Right, but yeah. if everything is an RPE 10, it's not going to be sustainable. Yeah. So, it's a, so it's RPE a useful... is a very great tool to tell you right. when you're approaching your MRV. It's not an exact indicator, but it's a good one. Yeah, excellent. Let me ask you, what's the problem with programs in general? And you may have said this. We may have kind of touched on this a little bit earlier. but Sure. You know, I'm, I don't know if I'm comfortable saying the problem, but I'll tell you a problem that's okay. very big yeah. is the fact that a lot of programs are set in stone and the only – so their volumes are set in stone, right? Sets and reps are set in stone and the only thing you manipulate as the person who purchased the program or who subscribed to it or read it online is the actual intensity, right? right. Uh, a very good example is 531. So you're familiar with 531? Yes, yes. So five through one is is fundamentally a very well designed program, but it's a much better program if you give people the opportunity to do more or less volume based on what they need. Right. Um, some people it, it five through one is actually an interesting program because it's actually very biased to low volume tolerance. So if your MRV is very low, five through one is a really good program because it beats you up. But if you have a high max recoverable volume, particularly if you're a smaller individual, if you're female, if you have been training for a while, uh, you're, you're going to be able to handle some volumes that are just insane. And something like five through one, literally, you know, I, I have some friends who train in the Shaco programming, right? right. And, and they'll say, five through one is like a warm up. Right? It's what you do to warm up. <laughs> right. yeah. Where's the work? Yeah. Well, there is no work. Right. You know, so so it's one of those things where you know a really really good program fundamentally allows you to alter your volume. We've just released um, at Renaissance. We have the uh, auto uh, hypertrophy auto templates, and these are training templates. You get to plug in your own exercises and your ten rep maxes, and it spits out a program for you. But it doesn't just spit out a program. It spits out a program that you rate essentially what what amounts to your RPEs. It rates your your perceived exertion, 
And as the ratings are put in, if the program, if you're rating the program is very easy, it ups the volume every single week. If you're rating the program is just right, it doesn't change the volume. If you're rating the program is super duper tough, it drops the volume for you. So the program finds your MRV for you and trains you at it. Got it. So the big limit with a lot of other programs, you know, it sounds like a shameless plug. It is. I think I think we built a great program. But there's multiple <laughs> other programs, and especially yeah. if you work with a powerlifting coach, working with a coach is really great because that coach can help you find your MRV. Uh, other programs, if you just get, you know, West Side Manual or Five Through One or any of the other just regular programs, a lot of times, man, there's just a certain amount of work, and people will say, well, you know, I didn't like Shaco, I didn't like this and that, I didn't like that program, and I think about 50% of those people would think that program is just fine if they got to lower or raise the volume, and that's just not a feature on the program. So going back to the question, I think really a big problem is really the the lack of the ability to scale the program is really what you're saying. Correct. Okay. By, by volume. Yes. I think uh, intensity yes. ranges are, as written in most programs, fine for most people. There is some variation in intensity that uh, is sort of preferable to some than others, but it's a much smaller window. But the variation in preferable volumes and max recovery volumes is enormous. I mean, you have people uh, who can do a lot in two sets in a program that does two working sets. Let's say, let's say twice a week, you train the same muscle group, which is not uh, crazy. Some people with two sets twice a week that are overloading will get amazing results. Uh, other people, and, you know, and, and much more than that. And they really burn out. Other people can do six to eight sets in, 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 and, and be just fine. Yeah. There's a huge, and I'm sure you've seen with your own clients and people you've consulted, man, people are not built the same way in that regard. Right. Right. Now, I think people get overwhelmed with program selection, and I'm curious what advice you would have for people in, in picking a program. I think sometimes because there are so many programs available and people uh, end up doing random training for too long sure. of a time period and they don't do a, a program. What are, your, sure. what are your thoughts on that and what advice would you have on Well, I think, I think designing your, your own training is fine. My, my biggest advice is to get educated, really. Read some articles by intelligent people that have good things to say and uh, maybe read a book or two. And, and once you do that, you'll be able to not be as overwhelmed because here's what's going to happen. You had a list of 100 programs that you were looking at potentially doing, right? And you knew really kind of nothing about strength training. So all, all 100 programs seem to be viable options. Uh, and uh, once you learned a bunch about programming, you could probably get rid of 50 of those programs because they're that stupid, <laughs> right? Yeah. These are just programs that are completely ridiculous. Nobody should ever be doing them, and you could just throw them right away. See, now you're not as overwhelmed because now you only have 50 programs, and if you learn some more, you can say, okay, well, some of these programs are for different lifters, not myself. They're for bigger lifters. They're for equipped lifters, the more advanced lifters or for beginner lifters, and then you're down to 20 programs, and then – your job is even simpler. And is the more you learn, eventually you're only going to be picking from five or six programs. And here's my advice for that. Pick a program, stick to it, get some good results, and you will. If you've narrowed down that many programs, you will definitely get good results. And then once you've done that program, maybe next uh, mesocycle, you can do another program also from that list of five or six really good programs. And then you see how you how you do, adjust your max recoverable or adjust your volume to your MRV. And then you know what? I'll tell you this, um, if you are lifting in the five or six programs that really work great, you don't even need to pick one of them. You can just consistently cycle through them and all of them are going to be great. Right, right. Great advice. Great advice. And that, that's something we talk about a lot here on the show is, hey, you know, pick a program, uh, follow the program, find out what works. Yes. 
And uh, so I love that. Yeah, you know, just really quick, uh, I'd really like to support that statement you just made because it's an excellent statement. Um, one of the stupidest things you can do is to uh, program hop in the wrong way. Program hopping in the right way, which is just a use of variation, is to let a program run its course yes. and then do another yes. program. That's great. Right. At least you can conclude <laughs> something from that. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> At least yeah. you can say, well, it worked like this. Yeah. But uh, you know, I know people who, and here's a really terrible example. I know people who will begin a program and it's a five-week program. They'll stop at week one and a half. And I'll tell you why. Yeah. Because the program is a volume program that is intentionally designed to fatigue you. So they get huge adaptations that are masked by this fatigue. And only when you switch to a lower volume program will you be allowed to express your new strength or new size that you've gained. But what people will do is they'll notice the program is fatiguing them. They can't show off in the gym anymore. Their one rep maxes go down. One of the funniest messages I'll ever get is, hey, I tried this high-volume training, but my 1RM went down. And I go, how the heck do you know it went down? They go, well, I tested it. <laughs> Why are you testing your 1RM every week? Like, well, that's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> so you know, these people, yeah. you end up basically feeling a little worse, which you're supposed to feel worse. If yeah. a program isn't making you feel like crap, it's not overloading you. So they'll quit, and they'll go to another program. They're right. like, well, this one doesn't make me feel like crap anymore. You just quit the best program for you, yeah. and you didn't even learn anything. Now, if you survived a month of crap, and then the next week you – uh, you know, deloaded like the program said, and then you tested your maxes or your five RMs or your 10 RMs and you blew everything out of the water. Oh, now you go, whoa, I'm so glad I didn't quit that early. <laughs> I just had something I was going to say and I lost my train of thought here. No worries. Oh, God, it was something good too. Oh, I know what it was. So what I was going to say is actually, it seems like something around the two week time period, you know, people that are in a program about two weeks if it's not working the way they think it should be working, that's kind of the time period when they want to bail. Mm -hmm. And it's also that time period where, you know, they start thinking about another program and I call it like mm -hmm. shiny new program syndrome. You know, <laughs> yes. I mean, really, because that's what they want to do is they, you know, two weeks they get distracted. They want to go to another program. And I've had a lot of people mm -hmm. say that, you know, that's the problem with, with a program. And that's why I say here on the show, you know, pick a program and follow that program through to completion. So that was yeah. really just my follow-up to your point. Totally. And you know what? It's really not a problem with the program. It's a problem with the person. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. a, a problem with the car isn't that you can ram it into people. That's a problem with people. Right. <laughs> you, right. you shouldn't right. be doing that. Yeah. The car is just fine the way it works. So, <laughs> yeah, totally. And, you know, I think that it actually coincides with fatigue accumulation, right? After yeah. two weeks That's is when the program point. really starts to beat you up. But it's sure. supposed to beat you up. Yeah. And people start to feel a little crappy. They come in and have a couple of not great work. Workouts. I mean, obviously the workouts are still effective, yeah. but they feel bad during them. They feel very fatigued and they go, oh man, this isn't working for me. And they go to a new program. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the new program starts off easy as all programs that are good do. <laughs> right. And they go, hey, great. This is great. Yeah. And then two weeks later, they go, oh, this feels like this is really bad. If you are not comfortable with the idea that you will be training pretty beat up, powerlifting is not sport for you. Strength yeah. training is not up your alley. Yep. You have to understand that there will be times when you're not feeling great. And those are the good times that are actually making you better. Let's uh, let's switch topics a little bit. Uh, I have a couple kind of unrelated questions here, sure. well, related, unrelated, but seems to be a debate about uh, work capacity. I don't know if you've caught much of that online, but I'm curious your thoughts mm -hmm. on strength versus work capacity. Is one more important? Are they dependent on each other? 
What are your thoughts, comments on? on well, this is, so they're definitely dependent on each other, and it's a very easy question to answer if I right. pick a specific sport. So powerlifting, actually, a general sport preparation is the following: yep. you build uh, in the first phases of training, you build a high work capacity, so that you can use that high work capacity to train in in strength more during your basic strength phases that follow. Then when you're peaking for a powerlifting meet, you don't really need work capacity because the volume of work is so low and the intensity is so high. So work capacity has a huge fundamental tool. It, it is a huge fundamental tool in allowing you to strength train more. But once you're in the peaking phase, you don't need to have a high work capacity anymore because you're, first of all, training for high work capacity interferes with the expression of strength because right. it's so fatiguing. So that would really, really mess you up. And also, you're doing sets of one to three. I mean, my God, people who have heart conditions can do sets of one to three, right? <laughs> so you're going to have work capacity is fine. Peaking training is the least taxing training in powerlifting. It feels the hardest because the weights are super heavy, but you don't need a high work capacity for that. However, for, for strength training, multiple sets of five reps, uh, you do need a high work capacity in, in the hypertrophy phase slash work capacity phase that precedes the strength phase. That's when you need to build your work capacity. I think a lot of people are uh, misinterpreting uh, powerlifting and sport training is that everything must be trained concurrently at the same time. That's not the case. As a matter of fact, the, the science of periodization was born. The very term periodization means yeah. that there are distinct periods of training that you focus on some things and those things potentiate the expression of uh, – you know, other qualities and allow them to come to true fruition, which is, is actually a training principle in and of itself called phase potentiation. So our work capacity phase is going to potentiate expression of or the ability to build strength in the strength phase. But the strength phase potentiates the general strength you need to make a peaking phase go really well. But at that point, we're not working on work capacity. So work capacity for a power lifter is going to be something that every now and again they're going to take the time to build up. But if they're concerned about always having a high work capacity, they're not going to be the best lifter they can be. Right before on meet day, every lifter on that platform that's any good is going to have a really crappy work capacity. You know what? That's A-OK. -okay. Because which capacity are they going to have that's awesome? Their 1RM capacity. Right. That's the most important. You know, They don't give you a powerlifting trophy if you could have done a set of 10 with just a little bit less weight. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. They don't give you a powerlifting trophy for how out of breath you were after you lift. They give you a trophy for how much weight you can lift. And by definition, those are trade-offs of each other in the short term. In the long term, work capacity absolutely helps to build up strength, but you got to do it sequentially. Yeah, so, so the answer to the question then is really it depends on where you are in your training and, and really what you're training for. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. 100%. Awesome. And you know, I'll, I'll say this really quick one more time or uh, in addition to this, how capacity absolutely depends on your sport. You kind of just said this with your last statement, uh, what you're training for. So look, if you're a CrossFitter, you're always going to have to have a really high work capacity. There'll be times where you have a higher and times are lower, but the, your average work capacity is going to be insane. If you're a power lifter or you better still an Olympic weightlifter, on average, your work capacity is going to make you almost a non-athlete as the ACSM qualifies you based on a step test. You know I mean? <laughs> right. like, if you're a really good power lifter, you're not going to have a high work capacity. Why? Because those are completely different systems in large part. Now, your work capacity is going to be higher when you do high reps in hypertrophy and work capacity phase. But man, you know, any cyclist, crossfitter, endurance runner is going to look at a powerlifter at the very end of his work capacity phase and go, you don't have any work capacity. Yeah, but you don't have any strength, right? So we got to remember what sport we're talking about. Uh, what we're seeing nowadays is people kind of have this want-it-all attitude. Well, I want to be the best crossfitter and gymnast and weightlifter and powerlifter I can be. Well, that's impossible. Right. And Absolutely. you're going to have to learn that if you want to be the best of everything,
everything, you're going to have to be very good at everything is totally possible. But if you want to be the best power lifter, you can be, you're going to have to learn to accept a much lower work capacity among other things. Yeah. So if you're really going to excel in one area, then another area has to give. Cool. All right. So switching gears again, let's talk a little bit about uh, carbohydrate intake. And this is a question I really wanted to ask you. So is carb consumption, in your opinion, dependent on the level and type of training? Uh, for example, so is, is paleo reasonable for a crossfitter or a high-level strength athlete, weightlifter or powerlifter? What are your thoughts no. on that? No, absolutely not. Okay. Um, carbohydrates. So, the literature on carbohydrates benefit to high-volume training and performance is so overwhelming that you know there's entire textbooks full of it. Um, and it's so one-sided that generally people don't really debate this much in the nutritional science literature. I and mean, every now and again, you get little flare-ups, particularities, but it's pretty well set in stone that how much carbohydrate you need heavily relates to how physically active you are throughout the day because you're burning stored carbohydrate and primarily how high of a volume of training you have. So if you're an athlete that trains with a very high training volume, lots of sets and reps and duration of training and lots of cardio, you're going to benefit from a high intensity carbohydrates. If you train very little, if you're an Olympic weightlifter, you need very much few, much fewer carbohydrates, much less carbohydrate than if you're a CrossFitter, for example. I mean, what's a typical Olympic weightlifting session like? If you time it out, if we have like an alien overlord who knows nothing about lifting or nothing about weights, come down to earth and watch Olympic weightlifters train, he's going to write a report and says, you have the laziest athletes of all time because 97% of the time that I observed them, they were sitting down and talking to each other. And every now and again, they like lifted a weight over their head once or twice, right? So the, the Olympic weightlifter vol training volumes are incredibly low. They don't need that much carbohydrate. If you're an endurance runner, you need an extremely high amount of carbohydrate and everything in between. Got it. Well, on the flip side of the athlete, what about uh, the 10, 20 pound overweight individual that is a general exerciser, maybe been exercising the past couple of months? What, uh, what are your thoughts on kind of the lower carbohydrate approach here? And when I say lower, I mean like 50 to 100 grams a day. 50 to 100 grams a day for most people of most body weights is really what you would eat on like a rest day. As soon as you're exercising at least somewhat, you usually need more than that to optimize results. But some people, they don't train much. Their average weekly intake could look very low. Uh, I'll say this. you know, If you are uh, an administrative assistant and you spend most of your time seated and you exercise two or three times a week, your average day is going to look a really, really a lot like paleo. Right. Why? Because you don't do anything. Got it. Yeah. Uh, of course, you're going to eat a relatively low carbohydrate diet and a relatively low calorie diet. If you do not eat a relatively low calorie diet, you're going to be running into some problems with obesity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, can you eat? Can you eat? Is there a big leeway? You know, if you eat a high carb diet, can you still do that? If you drop your fats low enough, yeah, totally. And as long as you don't drop your fats too low, there's no repercussion of that. But as far as need, do you need to eat a high carbohydrate diet if you don't do a whole lot? No. Are low carbohydrates fine on the days in which you don't train a lot, or if you have a lot of those days in the weeks you didn't train a lot yeah totally yeah. they're totally fine it's all related to how much energy you expend absolutely got it makes sense uh i know you touched on this earlier but give us a quick kind of overview of the renaissance diet yeah, so it's very similar to the Scientific uh, Principles of Training book uh, in that it ranks dietary priorities. Okay. So what it does is it's, uh, it ranks uh, – it basically gives a holistic kind of understanding of the dieting process that if you want to gain muscle or lose fat, the most powerful weapon you have is calorie balance. Right? So if you want to lose fat, 
cutting calories is the most important thing you can do or being in a calorie deficit really which can come from exercise increase and calorie cutting and then if you want to gain muscle the biggest thing you can do is have a calorie surplus or eat more calories than you burn after that is we, we estimate the calorie balance accounts for roughly 50 percent of all the variants and results that people get from diets so you know mom and grandma are doing the cabbage soup diet or the grapefruit diet or something that sounds really stupid <laughs> but it fundamentally me- yeah. means you eat less calories than you burn you will lose weight on it. You might lose a lot of muscle as well, but you will do well. Uh, you know, a huge, the biggest fraction of results is just from manipulating calories. And uh, on the flip side, if you have a super awesome diet that doesn't manipulate calories properly, if you're trying to lose fat while eating too much food, it doesn't matter how good the food is. It doesn't matter how much, you know, if the food came from whole foods and how much of it is organic, free range or whatever. It doesn't matter how good your timing is. You're almost certain not to lose very much fat because you're eating too many calories because that's how important calorie balance is. Second uh, of the rankings is for macronutrient amounts. So how much protein, carbs, and fats you eat within those calories. If you don't eat enough protein, you're going to lose a bunch of muscle. If you don't eat enough protein when you're uh, trying to gain weight, you're not going to gain much muscle. You have to eat, we just talked about carbs, you have to eat enough carbs to fuel training, and you have to have a minimum amount of fats to uh, support various hormonal processes, and fats are essential to human health and function. So you have to make sure all those aligned. We estimate, based on our review of literature, that roughly uh, 30% of all dietary effects are affected by macronutrient ratios. So it's a big piece of the puzzle. Not as big as calories, but still really important. Right there, calories and macros is the uh, sort of approach to dieting called IIFYM. I'm sure you've heard of that, like right. if it fits your macros, right? Yeah. And, and so if it fits your macros is not the whole picture of dieting. Hey, but it's, it's really close. And if you just pay attention to macros and calories and you do things right, you're going to get a huge whopper of results. So is it can you can you lose fat eating Pop-Tarts and donuts? Yeah, totally. If you just don't eat too many of them and you also get some protein. Right. Um, and so the third priority uh, out of five is – or five or six depending on how you see it – is nutrient timing. We say it's only 10 percent of uh, the whole effect. It's a small detail but if you're a competitive yeah. athlete uh, and you want to get the most out of your diet, it's a good idea to pay attention to. And then lastly, sort of in the last two places, are uh, food composition, which is where you get your fats, proteins, and carbs. Is it organic whole grain peanut butter or is it super elite ultra manufactured oil or something like that? And it, it turns out that's not a really big deal. It's only 5%. And then lastly, a supplements. Supplements, we say, account for only about 5% of alterations in body composition. Yeah. So, you know, is super creatine, exotic extreme three, you know, beta all going to be what's going to get you lean? <laughs> right. No, it yeah, can help yeah. a tiny bit. Sure. Sure, sure. Well, that sounds really good. I actually don't have mm-hmm. this book, but I've heard a lot about it. It sounds like a great resource, and uh, you cover a lot of information in that. So, awesome, man. For sure. Thank you. Uh, final question here before we get into a little rapid fire segment, and then we're going to uh, wrap things up here. But uh, so, I, I definitely wanted to ask you about a, a video I came across in doing some research for this interview. And the, the, I found a, a YouTube video where you interviewed Constantine Constantinov. I knew I was going to butcher that name. <laughs> I knew it. Uh, but uh, what was your experience like with the interview with Constantine? And what was maybe the key takeaway that you could share about that? He's really scary. 
Um, <laughs> he's a big guy. He's just as just as scary in Russian as he is in English, and uh, he talks in this really, really deep voice, and he has like a really crazy presence about him yeah. that is like really um, it's really intimidating. He seems really manly. Um, he seems like he's like descended from like a king or something like that. You just get this idea about him that he's important. Right. Anytime he walks into the room, you're like, oh. Ooh, what's up with that? <laughs> right. So talking to him uh, was really cool, but yep. he can. He's also very down to earth, um, and he's very intense. And, right. and the big thing that I got, I took away from uh, from him yes. is when you are passionate about something, do it right. And, you know, it's, it's really easy to say, well, I'll just eat pretty decent food and I'll just have an okay training session because there are other things in life that matter other than training until Constantine Constantinos with a super deep voice tells you, you got to do things right. And you're like, oh my God. Right. Yes, I do. (laughs) What was I thinking? Right. So, you know, a a guy who's that good and who's that intense takes the sport very seriously. So he travels for work something like 40 weeks out of the year. He's like a he's like a personal defense bodyguard type of guy. I think he runs a company that provides bodyguards to super rich people. And he travels often with those people. And he says he doesn't really eat junk food. He makes sure to get good food in. And man, if he can do that on the road, what the heck are the rest of us complaining about? So he has this he loves lifting and he's very serious about it. And it's a very kind of, um, it's a very contagious thing. After you talk to him, you're like, man, I'm really serious about lifting too. <laughs> yeah. So that's awesome. Mm-hmm. So how do you say his last name? Is it Konstantinovos? Konstantinovs. Const- Konstantinovs. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's so just he- his name repeated with an OVS at the end. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That's awesome though. So passion, uh, follow your passion and go all in with, uh, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. All right, cool, man. So a couple of rapid fire questions here, three quick questions, and then we'll pull everything together. So the first question is, what's the strength training book that's had the the biggest influence on you personally? Is there one? Uh, Principles of Resistance Training by Dr. Mike Stone. He was my supervisor at East Tennessee State University in my PhD program. And his book, which we learned right out of the book, our, our slides came from the book that we learned in class and I mean, it taught me a huge, huge fraction of what I know. It's um, indispensable. It's, it was it, when it was written. It was probably one of the only books of its kind. Um, Doctor Stone himself uh, has uh, he has 250 peer-reviewed publications in sports science. He's one of the preeminent sports scientists in the United States. He is like 60 trillion years old or something. And back in his heyday, when he was uh, he has lifted his entire life. Back in his heyday, uh, weighing somewhere between 250 and 300 pounds, he squatted 727 pounds raw. He deadlifted 727 pounds raw, and wow. he's done some other very incredible strength feats. This, you know, you you called me a rarity because I'm a strength athlete uh, that practices and preaches the yeah. scientific way. Yeah. Uh, Doctor Stone is ten times the man that I am. Wow. So, uh, you know, hopefully one day I can ac- accumulate enough cool stuff about <laughs> myself to compare myself to him. But yeah. this is again, his book very f- thoroughly reflects that. You're not. Not just reading, you know, some some books you read on strength training by some nerdy people who don't lift. You're like, oh, you know, in theory this might work, but who the hell are you? Right, um, right. Doctor Stone uh, is the real deal, and his book is is fun, is is awesome, and I would recommend it to a lot of people. Is that book still av- available? Yeah, totally. It's a textbook. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. the thing is, it's That's not a book designed for lay reading. Right, it is a textbook. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, cool. uh, hey, you know, if you want to know some real good stuff, you're gonna have to read textbooks. Yep. 
Besides training, what's a success habit or ritual that you have? Is there something that you do every, every day, every morning, uh, writing, reading, meditation, anything that, that you do? Well, I don't know how to read yet, but I'm working on that. <laughs> so I've been learning to read, which I think is going to really make me successful. Um, uh, you know, I used to be involved more heavily in meditation. I do that now every now and again. But uh, I would actually say that one of the uh, my keys for success or the reason I've been successful to the relative extent that I have is a kind of a gift and a curse. Um I'm incapable of not doing work for much longer than several days on end, and then most days much longer for several hours on end. So I can't really, I don't really do well on vacation, um, which is kind of crazy. I recommend that people take vacations. Do not emulate me. But the reason <laughs> yeah. that I'm very successful is I have an itching desire to do things, to put down ideas, to uh, create training programs. I, I have a, I have a, I have a psychological problem. I do not feel like a human being unless I am productive. And I think in me, it's a bit more extreme than in some other people, which is yeah. why I work all the time and which is why I've done all the things I've done. So, so, so let me ask you a follow up to that. And this is not one of the rapid fire questions, but when did you realize that you were a scientist, like a super analytical thinker as, as you are, as I've, as I've, discovered about you and certainly reading your work and, and seeing you and hearing you very analytical. Yeah. So when, when did you, well, when did you discover that? <laughs> um, man, you know, I, uh, I remember I had uh, attention deficit disorder when I was a kid and it was undiagnosed until I was my ninth grade freshman year in high school. And I had gotten a lot of failing grades because I couldn't pay attention. When I was finally medicated for it, um, I began to be an exceptional student and I was in summer school that year to make up all the classes that I'd failed. And we were learning, uh, it was summer school, it was biology class. And we learned about the animal cell and it dawned on me from reading the book and listening to the teacher and doing my little drawings that we were about to do that the animal cell was a machine. And I never turned back. Wow. I thought, oh my God, this all makes sense. <laughs> right. And everything is just moving parts in systems that can be understood. Yeah. And ever since then, I've been trying to systematize everything around me. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. So the third question here is knowing what you do know today, what would be the big advice you give yourself 10 years, 10 years earlier? Cover up because I'm on a time machine coming back to beat myself up 10 years earlier. <laughs> Just get into turtle position on the ground and take the beating. That's oh, my advice. Man. No, uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that would be cool though, to have a time machine to go beat myself up in the past. Yeah. You know, after I got thoroughly done with myself and be like, PS, I'm you from the future. And I'd probably be like, Oh, awesome. I'm so jacked. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, what would give myself advice, you know, probably a key, always think, always think, um, Always be skeptical in the in the right way, not cynical, but always uh, try to understand the world around you. Try to understand the systems that operate to allow for uh, training and diet and everything like that to occur. Because when you get down to the fundamental realities, that's when you start to uh, really understand things and be very effective. I remember one time uh, – are you familiar with who Shelby Starnes is? Yes. Yes, I am. It was, uh, I used to train in the same gym as Shelby Starnes way back when. Okay. And this is back when I knew almost nothing. And I came up to Shelby and I was like, so what kind of approach do you do when you train your, when you do diets? And he's like, what do you mean? And I go, do you do low carb, 
Are you doing high fats? Are you doing low carbs? Because to me, dieting was just these competing ideas, right? That all had equal merit. And it was kind of these camps you were in. You were low carb or high fat, blah, 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 all this other stuff, right? Right. And I didn't have an understanding that there was a fundamental reality to dieting that everyone had to conform to. So Shelby's answer was, well, it's just dieting. And I was like, what? Like, this guy can't really know what he's talking about. And like right then and there, it hit me like, oh my God, he really does know what he's talking about. (laughs) So it was kind of embarrassing to me that I even said that to him. And I was like, you know what? Forget this. I'm going to try to learn as much as I can because I should have known this, right? Uh, Of course, there is a a range of human variation and there's different applications, different approaches. But he knew so much more of the reality than I did that I was just like, oh, my God, I got to keep researching, thinking and training because I don't want to not know stuff anymore. So people can find you online at renaissanceperiodization.com. Tell us a little bit about this site and your role. So Renaissance was the company that myself and uh, Nick Shaw started, and he's the CEO. He actually runs the company. Um, We started Renaissance when I was in the middle of my – towards the end of my PhD program. We started the company because uh, Nick and I were training a lot of people and doing diets for people kind of on the side. And Nick was actually doing that. He was a professional personal trainer. And when one of us couldn't take a client or wasn't around or was busy, we usually would give each other clients, right? We'd say, well, you know what? I can't take you as a diet client right now, but my colleague Nick Shaw, blah, blah, blah. And they would ask things like, well, who the heck is Nick Shaw? And they would ask Nick, who the heck is Mike Isertel and why should I trust him? So eventually – uh, Nick had his own company called Shaw Fitness, which was just he and LLC was incorporated so that he could train people. And Nick said, look, Mike, it, it, him and I had been talking about starting a program or a, a, a company for a while. And he's like, look, we might as well just uh, incorporate together and start this uh, company because it just gives me a much more fluid way to share clients. <laughs> so we started it and we started it not just for convenience, but we'd always had this idea ever since we we're training together in New York City. That So when Nick and I arrived in New York City, I had a master's degree. Nick had an undergraduate. We were there for one year. Nick stayed for a while, uh, actually for much longer and expanded and opened his own very successful business. But we were there for one year uh, as personal trainers. I left after a year to go to a PhD program. And, and we realized that at that time, knowing science to a lot of people meant nothing. And they were only interested in what the gurus had to say fads and gurus were king. Right. Oh, well, this right. guy trained these pro bodybuilders. I mean, he has to know what's going on. And we're watching this guy train people, and we know he couldn't train himself out of a plastic bag. We got so fed up with that stuff that we started a company based on scientific principles, yeah. on systematic, calculable things. There is a fundamental underlying reality to training. There are rules. There are systems. There are right and wrong answers. That's why we started Renaissance. Um, the, even the name itself is an ode to uh, both the Renaissance period in which science began to finally outdo dogma and to uh, an interesting story. There's a financial corporation, a hedge fund in New York City called Renaissance Technologies. Uh And it was the first quantitative hedge fund. They said to heck with all these guesses about which stocks are going up and down. We're going to use mathematicians, scientists, and supercomputers to predict stock prices. And sure as heck, they, they... basically blew everyone out of the water. They're unbelievably successful because they use scientific and mathematical principles. And I, when I heard of that story, I was like, oh my God, this is like, this is the golden fleece. This is what everyone's been looking for. <laughs> so we named our company Renaissance because nice. we thought, you know, we're done with Guru X says this and Fad Diet says that. We want the real deal and we want other people to have it too. So now we're kind of uh, producers of knowledge and communicators of knowledge about, well, this is what actually works. Excellent. Where do you recommend people go when they go to the website? Is there a 
specific area that they should You know, we start? have an area for donations to me personally. I would love it <laughs> if they went to that. You know, everything helps. Uh, I got to I gotta start season. one of those. Yeah. That would be so great, right? right? Just make personal donations to the staff. Definitely. Um, <laughs> it's funny if you – it's funny that we're joking about that. Whatever institution you went to for your uh, education, every yeah. single college has a part of the page that's like donate to the school. It's like, don't right. you guys get tuition money? Yeah. What the heck is going on here? Yeah. <laughs> you can just donate a ton to the Alumni Association. But uh, no, so the, so the part of the website, I mean, I would start with the About Us section, really, uh, because it's going to give you a good overview of what it is we do at Renaissance. And after you've read that, and if you think it looks okay, you yeah. can explore some of the transformations we have and other clients we've worked with that are really cool before and after pictures. You can look at the staff we have and read about them. Yeah. Uh, one thing that we're proud of about at Renaissance is uh, almost all of our staff have PhDs, and they're also elite athletes. Yeah, uh, our staff is kind of kind of crazy. I'm not remotely the most qualified person <laughs> on that site, so I'm thinking of firing some people so I can feel good about myself. But <laughs> nice. Maybe that'll be down the line. <laughs> you know, I I like to ask that question: Where should people start? Because it's important. You know, you go to a website. Hey, you know, find so and so at this website. But sure. you know, where do you start? And I think you actually that's a great place to start. Is go to the about page or about us. And learn who you are, you know, who is Renaissance periodization. So sure. And if you don't great. like what you see, hey, you can stop wasting your yeah. time right then and there. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, anywhere else that people can uh, catch you online, social media? Yeah, totally. Like so you can catch Renaissance on Facebook, Renaissance on Instagram, at RP Strength. You know, I'm not on Instagram yet, but Renaissance is. And we have like 30,000 followers or something crazy. So you can see a lot of cool stuff. Uh, Renaissance Periodization um, on Facebook, we put out a ton of free content, videos, um, various posts about scientific process of training, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And my own personal page is public. Mike is Rattel, uh, on Facebook. Um, I have like, a, uh, all my friends are maxed out pretty much, but, uh, you can follow me on there and, uh, you can make fun of me and it'll be great. Um, so come give me some crap on there and ask me a bunch of questions and it'll all be good. My, my Facebook wall is, uh, is very active and I all very, very often, probably multiple times a week, will post little Triests on science and training little tidbits. And a lot of people seem to think those are pretty cool. So, uh, come check it out. Cool. All right. And I'll be sure to put uh, links for everything or most of the things that we talked about in the show notes. I'll definitely have a link for the book, scientific, uh, principles in the show notes for this episode. Final question, last question. What's the one action, something that listeners can walk away from this interview with and apply maybe in their training right now? Think deeply. Think deeply. Yeah. Yeah. I would say if you gave me two, I'd say train hard and think deeply. But, but you know, Scott, you only gave you one. Yeah. So this is what I have to work with. <laughs> well, yeah. So one is good. And I would, I would say to do that, um, to get the book, to get this book, uh, scientific principles of strength training, because you will have to think deeply to really uh, read and to, under- to survive it, right? <laughs> to, to understand it, you know what I mean? It's it's again, again, yeah. I'm I'm a a fast reader, and I've really taken my time with this book, and I'll probably go back and reread this stuff, and I've got it, you know, marked up. You really did convey complex ideas, very uh, that are very easily understandable. So well, it's written so very much. well, and it's a great resource. And that's really why I wanted to have you on was to uh, help spread the word about this great book. I know the audience here will love it. So, Mike, thank you so much. It's been a blast. Really enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully maybe we'll do this again down the line. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. All right, guys. Quick wrap up here. Just, uh, again, I hope that you had tremendous value from this interview. Uh, Extremely honored to have a guy like Dr. Mike Israetel come on the show and talk about his unique insight and knowledge as a strength scientist and as an athlete. 
And I highly recommend this book, Scientific Principles of Strength Training. I know that I recommend a lot of books on the show. So please pick and choose what is most appropriate for you. But uh, this is a really valuable resource to really understand the mechanisms, the rationale behind good strength training and good programming. It's a great book. I highly, highly recommend it. And certainly I could spend some time talking about this on the future on the show here if you'd like to know more about this book and why I like it. Again, I get paid nothing for it. I'm not an affiliate or anything like that. This is just a great resource that I am simply sharing here with you because I know that this resource can help us all get to the next level. So check that out. And uh, that's it. So with that, again, I have so many great interviews, so many great things coming here on the show. Please subscribe to the show. Please review the show if you like what we're doing here. And uh, the reviews really help to grow the show. Thank you for listening this week. And I'll see you next week on the Ardello Training Podcast. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the Ardella Training Podcast. Go to ArdellaTraining.com right now to join Scott's tribe of passionate fitness enthusiasts. Get valuable updates and resources that will help you take it to the next level. Train strong. We'll catch you next time on the Ardella Training Podcast.